No one will be admitted after the guests check in. For the nookie. The, the what? The nookie. So yeah. you can take that cookie? And stick it up here. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Are we starting? We did. We are? We're can start. forward? We're start. Uh, are you ready to start? Yeah, we're going to start. I'd like to start this episode with a pledge. I pledge my weebness to the state and country of Japan. Please. One nation under under big ass titties. anime titties, titties and tentacles. Titties. And four God, tentacles Godzilla. and Godzillas <laughs> for all. Thank Amen. you. Welcome to Motel Hell. Welcome. I'm Ben the Beardo. I'm Dick the Fetty. And tonight we're once again giving into our extreme weepness. Well Yes. But also Maybe not. But also, yes. Well, no, I mean, I don't think of Shinya Tsukamoto as being weeb culture. Well, I mean, it's just Japanese stuff that yeah, we're obsessed with anyway. That's a Japanophile, not a, not a weeb. Yeah, but like, if we... But I mean, have... weebs have body pillows. We don't have body pillows. We are weebs, though. But, but this isn't body pillow material. Yeah, we don't... Webster's Dictionary uh, defines weeb. Body pillows. Uh, yeah. So tonight we are covering the beloved cult director from Japan, the probably last and most fearsomely independent director in in Japan, uh, Shinya Tsukamoto, still directing, killing it to this very day. Is he still acting too? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he basically acts in all his films, and uh, as we just witnessed in tonight's movie... He is acting as of 2016. And we will start with our movie review. <laughs> movie review. So, um, the movie that we watched today was Shin Gojira, also known as Shin Godzilla here in the good old US of A. In America. It's America. So, directed by Hideaki Anno and Shinji Higuchi, with screenplay by Anno and special effects by Higuchi. Produced by Toho Pictures and Cine Bazaar and distributed by Toho, it's the 31st installment of the Godzilla franchise and the 29th film produced by Toho. And the probably the last Japanese Godzilla film you're going to see for a very long time. Disagree. think it's going to be the last this Godzilla iteration and it's going to be a whole new one. No, because Legendary actually has the rights. Um, they have like a deal with oh, Toei right, 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 and everything. Yeah, yeah. Toho, you mean? Toho, yeah. Yeah. A little bit different. Toei is a different company. Weebs. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're also talking about a, a director who comes from anime. So. Yeah, so, yeah, so, 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 so. Shin Godzilla is the 2016 Japanese iteration and of Godzilla. It brings in a whole new version of Godzilla. Actually, four forms. Although you really only see three. And because the one's underwater. Yeah, that's true. Um, it rules. It, I mean, 
I'm going to say right out the bat, I'm going to give it like a 9.5 out of 10. I'd honestly give it a 10 out of 10. It's, yeah, it's it borders on perfect, and that's a big increase for me from my first watch. It sort of comes at the most appropriate time. So a little backstory of how we first watched this. We'd been putting it off for a while, even though we wanted to do it. You've been asking me for years. Yeah. yeah. And we go to rent it on Amazon, and I'm thinking to myself, I gotta watch this movie in Japanese. I don't yeah. want to watch it. In we, I, we, I didn't even think there was an English dub. Yeah. So, I rent it on Amazon. It starts going in English, which was both good and bad because I really wanted to watch it in Japanese. But it also had a bunch of Funimation voice actors in it. And they spent a ton of money to do the dub, like a lot of money. Funimation spent a lot to do the dub. And the English dub, although it's good, we wanted to watch it in Japanese. So I actually called Amazon. Yeah. And had to talk to like three different people. Yeah. And they were like, yeah, yeah, we could totally give you your money back or or whatever you want. And I was like, no, listen, I just want to rent the Japanese language version with subtitles. And they're like, what? We don't have that? What might it do? Which is insane to me. Yeah. Well, it, but it wasn't that easy. We had to talk to three different reps. Eventually, we finally talked to somebody who understood what we were saying. We're like, we rented one version. We see another version. Before we rent that version, is that the version that's subtitled in Japanese? And they were like, we don't know. And then they were like, no. And then they refunded you, but we still... And we got to watch the rest of the movie, but it was in dubs. Yeah. And so. and when you're watching anime in dubs, it's fine. Even if it's bad dubs, it's fine. It's like, that's half the charm. But when you watch live actors, it's just a different thing. And some of these actors, we know the voices on, from seeing them in many different Japanese films, but it was just weird. And it always comes, you know, the, just the emotionality doesn't match up. Well, not to mention that the main... I'll say, well, yeah, I guess he's kind of the main guy, the one guy who... Noguchi? Yeah, who survives through, like, the whole movie, is voiced... I'm pretty sure he was voiced by the same guy who did Death the Kid in Soul, Soul Eater, which threw me off so much, because I just imagined him as this tiny boy who has really bad OCD. <laughs> yeah, well, but they also had the guy right from um, Cowboy Bebop who does Spike's voice and yes. some other stuff like that. They had the chick who plays uh, Motoko Kusanagi and the Ghost in the Shell uh, different iterations. She was in it. I mean, it was really good voice actors, but... It's a who's who of voice yeah, actors. Yeah, right, from anime. So you're like, oh, that's not a female uh, self-defense forces commander. That's, uh, that's Major Motoko Kusanagi. Yeah. Why are you here? So... <laughs> Um, yeah, needless to say, we, like, I mean, I liked it, but I was put off by the fact that, so, okay, this movie, it won movie of the year in Japan, the year it came out, it was a really big deal, I was just rereading some reviews from Japanese newspapers and stuff from when it came out, and they talk about it like it's the second coming of Christ, I think it's a really fantastic movie, I don't know that it's that good, but I can understand how, if you're Japanese, it's like their version of Rocky meets Independence Day, and it, it has like this like national importance that goes beyond just being a movie, and also the whole plot of the film is like a unique celebration of like Japanese people and their ability to overcome adversity. Well, so the way I look at this movie is almost a remake of the original, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because the original had social issues that it was trying to convey in it about nuclear power and uh, just... The atomic age, the yeah, loss the of man's age, innocence. All that stuff. And the original movie is not a kid's movie. 
It wasn't meant to be a kids movie. And then after that, Godzilla sprinted into kids movies essentially. Yeah. So to have another Godzilla for people who grew up with Godzilla in Japan, and I mean even over here, that's much more geared towards adults again is awesome. Yeah, and I mean, Legendary Pictures had already done that two years prior with the American Godzilla, which is not a kid's movie either. But it's also, it doesn't hit this, it's Godzilla, but it doesn't hit the same notes as... Right, I mean, it was an American... Japanese movie. Yeah, it was, it was just different. It was geared for American culture versus Japanese culture. And the other thing about it is that with Hideaki Anno directing, it basically plays out, as it was pointed out to me, uh, after the fact, as like an episode of Evangelion with an angel attack, yeah. and and the whole thing is essentially about crisis and disaster management for two hours, and then it just is Godzilla instead of an angel, and there's no yeah. Avas. Anno can make bureaucracy exciting. Yeah, it, <laughs> he's very good at and it, and it's really cool too because the way that they shoot it, it like is the same way that you know because. Evangelion has a filmic quality like this movie has a similarly that has shots that are it's like film to anime back to film again so like the there's a scene earlier on where they line up all the mics and it's just like all oh, straight out of Evangelion and like yeah. some other stuff like that but yeah it's you know Godzilla goes through these different forms he comes out and first like a little tadpole Godzilla Godzilla coon he's so cute and then uh he gets into like more still googly eyed but and destructive but not like fully badass Godzilla and then full-fledged fourth form nightmare godzilla is like a walking rave but also um you know nuclear weapon and it's i don't want to i mean there's not really much more to say if you are into godzilla like you well you've already seen this and don't go into seeing it thinking that it's going to be a sequel to any of the other godzillas it is Brand new Godzilla, brand new way to tell the story. Sure. Well, and at the same time, a reiteration of the original iteration. Right. And though, basically to watch it, if you want to watch it in Japanese with subs, at least in the United States, you can only buy it. Maybe you can rent it on iTunes, the one place I haven't checked, but I had to buy the Blu-ray in order to watch it with subs. You cannot stream it. Last I checked on Amazon. Maybe that's changed, but make sure you know what you're getting beforehand. Um... And it's just really fantastic. And the reason that we picked it, besides just having a strong desire to rewatch it, and especially after seeing King of Monsters twice in the past couple of months, is that Shinya Tsukamoto is in the film. And he has a relatively minor part as a expert biologist who helps create the plan to stop Godzilla. But I love that no matter where he is in the room, since he is wearing a pink towel around his neck, you can see him at all times. Yeah. And he, he just looks distinguished and the movie's full of good actors and good performances and it's very dialogue heavy in a certain way. But it was interesting because I, again, I, I like to reflect, especially with movies I like on how wrong everybody is that doesn't like them because so many of the complaints were like, it's hard to follow or it's this or it's that. It's definitely a movie that is better if you know about Japanese political history, current Japanese politics, like have some understanding of the way Japan works versus like how different it is than the United States. And if you're like a fan of Ghost in the Shell, Evangelion and Godzilla, then this is a shoe in cuz it to me it it sort of covers a lot of those things. There's not Ghost in the Shell goes way more into like political backstabbing and all that stuff, but oftentimes 
in these types of movies, like the biggest enemies are the ones within the government itself that are trying to save the city, not so much the outside force. It's not really in this movie, and the message is predominantly hopeful, which is why I liken it to right to Rocky. Um, but yeah, those things are all kind of like it feels so like, oh man, I've been here before. I know this kind of thing. Yeah, and well, that's the other thing is a lot of people I feel like I've talked to over the years who liked Godzilla when they were younger, but don't really remember it too well just remember all the big monster fights and don't remember how at least 45 minutes of the movie is just people speaking to each other everyone thinks it's just kaiju battles and that's really not what it is generally the minimum which is sort of the whole thing because it has to you have to give both context and if you give people what they want the whole time then it loses its effect yeah which is why this movie and japanese godzilla movies will always scratch an itch that american ones can't for me although see i disagree because i think that godzilla 2014 it only, i think i read a statistic that like godzilla's in that movie for 8 minutes and then the mutos earned it a lot more and i really like the mutos but they it still is mostly the human drama so i I thought that the first movie was successful in that way, but I also thought that Godzilla King of the Monsters was effective because they went full bore, like full tilt the other way and said, it's it's monsters the whole time, like it's non-sub kaiju. I, I do like the 2014 and King of Monsters. I think King of Monsters pulled off a Japanese Godzilla better only because a lot of, well, the two American just Godzilla movies that were made focus more on one singular character instead of like a bunch and a nation really trying to defeat it. Sure. And it's more about this one character's fear and this one character dealing with Godzilla and King of Monsters was more like a global thing. Yeah. Although, I mean, King of Monsters still is, you can, there are ways to criticize the writing for this movie for sure. King of Monsters is more easily, is is a much easier film to criticize because it's an extremely, like, Hollywood look at, like, how... I mean, the biggest part of it is that, like, every helicopter... Well, every, like, mode of transportation in that movie is is an Osprey. (laughs) Like, you just can't get around anywhere except for an Osprey or if you're on the ground, a Humvee. And that just... It defies all explanation and, and good sense. I mean, I love Ospreys, so it's, like, of all the things, I give it a pass because it's, like, Ospreys are such a cool idea. I thought you were joking when you were like, no, they are in almost every scene of the movie. Yeah. And I was like, there's no way! Yeah, and it's then like I, a, my mind was blown. Yeah. Yeah, dog. So, <laughs> it's pretty tight. But anyways, that's a different movie, different review for a different day. But yeah, we watched this because, as I will discuss over the course of this episode... Shinya Tsukamoto, kaiju films, uh, they're, they're like synonymous in my mind with each other, even though they're very different in some ways, but his love of the genre and love of the monster is what defines his filmography in a lot of ways, and also, I mean, his literal theater company, his like second theater company was called Kaiju Theater. They go together like olive oil masturbation. Yeah, you know, and he's in this one, so it gave us a good excuse. It yeah. was sick, and it was, I've been dying to watch this on my new TV, and it was as good as I thought it would be, so pretty thrilled with our yeah. decision making. You know what, this episode's canceled, we're just gonna go watch Sin Godzilla again. <laughs> yeah, um, okay, so that's, you give it a 10, I give it a 9.5. Yeah, I mean, huge jump, because I definitely would have given this movie like a 6.5 before, but now, it, it, knowing what to expect and also being able to watch it in subs just really made it, it was a game changer. Yep. So, okay, tonight's topic, and for the next, uh, this episode, and then the two following, we will be covering 
the history of Shinya Tsukamoto and his filmography, his, his biography, his whole deal, who he is, what his movies are about. And um, I hope to be exhaustive, but not exhausting. And more than anything, if I can impart a desire to watch his films beyond Tetsuo, then I will have done my job because he's one of the greatest directors of all time, as far as I'm concerned. And his movies are singular, uh, each from one from the other, as a, in terms of his overall ouvoir, but also they stand alone in a sea of bajillions of movies that are like mildly interesting. Every Shinya Tsukamoto movie is unique and unparalleled in what it does and how it looks. So my whole history with him pretty much comes from you. Mm. But for those who don't know Dick Fetty personally, let's see. I see at least one Tsukamoto poster in here. Is there more? That's the soundtrack for the first tattoo. There's the soundtrack. I mean, I do have the tattoo on my arm. He's got it tattooed on his arm. You've got four shirts, one of which is for your own band? Yeah. Is it, is it more <laughs> than four? I've got three 7-inch Target shirts, uh, all of which are revolve around Tetsuo. I have the Concrete Mascara shirt that I designed, which is a screen grab from Tetsuo, the Body Hammer. And I think I have another one. I think I have a... No, I think I was going to buy a long sleeve, a Tetsuo long sleeve, but I haven't bought it yet. So I thought you did have a long sleeve one. I might. You do. Oh, I, I have two long sleeve ones. Yeah. I have five shirts. So. <laughs> no, that's six. That's six shirts. And we've watched all of them together now, haven't we? You've never seen The Body Hammer. I've never seen The Body Hammer. Anyway, these are fun movies for me, especially because my wife isn't as into the alternative film genre as Dick Fetty and I are. And I remember we watched, I think it was The Bullet Man, and she was in the room, and she was just like, what the fuck is this? Yeah, and the Bullet like, Man... This is great, I don't know what you mean. Well, the other thing with the Bullet Man is it's literally a film, if you're not sitting dead center with your TV, it can give you motion sickness, because the steady, or the lack of steady cam, the shaky cam effect is a little overboard, but that'll be the third episode, we'll dive into yeah. that whole later area, uh, Sukumoto. I mean, that film is like, my opinion of it fluctuates wildly while I'm watching it, and also when I think about it, so... And it's his later films are generally good, although some of them are slightly less good. They're still Tsukamoto films, so I give him credit for that. But sometimes you wonder um, if some things were lost in the transition to the digital age. But otherwise, uh, yeah. Yeah, needless to say, so I am slightly biased. I'm covering a subject that I deeply love. And. That being said, I still haven't seen all of his movies, although by the time we air the episodes, I will have seen almost all of them so that I can speak from both first-hand knowledge of watching and also from the research that I did. Yes, so I'm very excited. Strap in, fuckers, because this is going to be a long haul. Yeah, it is. But I, like I said, I hope to make it fun. Okay, so first and foremost, I want to cite my source, the primary source for this episode, which is... Tom Mez's Iron Man, The Cinema of Shinya Tsukamoto, which is a book published on Fab Press that I believe is still in print, or even if it's out of print, it's relatively easy to get. I think you can get copies for a reasonable price on Amazon. I probably picked mine up from eBay. Tom Mez is a Dutch author who's written 
several books on Asian cinema, two on Takashi Miike, a first one, and then a second one because the guy directs so many goddamn films and never slows down. Well, actually, he did slow down, but um, he's written like two other books. I can't think of the who the directors are offhand. He ran a website with his brother and friend and another friend called Midnight Eye, which was from like 2003 to 13 or something like that. And they reviewed they reviewed movies as they were coming out, but also a lot of older films and gave a really, I thought, insightful and well-reasoned perspective into Japanese film that's pretty hard to get in the West because they clearly have an understanding of Japanese culture and history, which is essential to understand the films of any country because, of course, that stuff all informs what they do. Right, and I just really love that our last Motel Hell episode, we were like, we don't have time to read books. We only have time to pick them up. <laughs> and then the very next Motel Hell episode, Dick Fetty opens up with, so I read an entire book on this subject. Yeah, so I've read this book twice now. Uh, well, I'm about to finish my second go through of it. And it's really a pleasure to read. And it's one of the only books I've read this year, sadly. But, I mean, as far as books to read, I'm, I'm not complaining yeah, so Thomas is a guy who's he he's informed and he knows what he's talking about. And the thing that I again, along with the desire to, well, I should say, my hope to impart the desire in you, the listener, to watch films beyond Tetsuo the Bullet, or rather the Iron Man, is that I hope I can try to relay the character of Shinya Tsukamoto as he's as he describes himself and as, as he comes across and as Tom Mez describes him in this book and the sort of love and uh, just like deep respect that Tom Mez has for him as a director and also like all the other actors and people that are interviewed throughout the book. And, and it, it's just like, he's one of those people that I would love to meet and wouldn't even have anything to say, just like to shake his hand and be, thank him for his offerings in a world of otherwise mediocre and talentless art like he is one of the few auteurs that still is alive and kicking so with that being said i guess we should jump into it yeah i've got a boner i'm ready to dive right in penis first okay so shinya sukamoto was born january 1st 1960 in shibuya or tokyo I thought you were starting to laugh so no immediately i'm just smiling at you because you're so excited for this episode it's cute. Yeah, so uh, 1960 was basically a period of you know massive upheaval and change in Japan, in Tokyo especially, and all the other major city centers that were bombed to hell during World War II. And it's sort of uh, on theme with Shin Godzilla because they talk a lot about like the destruction of Japan right. because of Godzilla and the rebuilding and yada yada. And so he grew up where he grew up in Shibuya. Shibuya is like one of those places that you'll see constantly any kind of like slice of life or high school drama or anything that even touches on high school persona five yeah right it, <laughs> you will be in shibuya i've been to shibuya every time i've been to japan and it's a really it's so crazy now it's like a young person hot spot and a bunch of other stuff it's like one of the things they'll show in any western movie depicting tokyo like it's it's crazy but he was there when it was basically dilapidated houses next to like being built up apartment buildings and you know construction sites and this that and the other and just all this insanity and like you know these cities just you know the, the whole city was this massive organism that was rapidly expanding and he was alive and and 
um, you know, coming just into his early years when Japan was gearing up to get the uh, Olympics. And so as a result, they were like trying to build a Tokyo back up as fast as possible. And they were building the mega highways that like run across the elevated highways that run through Tokyo and the express trains that, um, or the monorail rather that runs from the airport. And they were putting in the fresh and constant bullet trains and all that kind of stuff. So that was the backdrop in which um, Tsukamoto was born Two years later, his brother Koji Tsukamoto was born, and we'll talk a lot about Koji, especially in this first episode. So a lot of the information I have about uh, Shinya's early life is that comes from him directly telling Tom Mez. So most of the information in all of these episodes, a lot of it will be culled from the book, although the book ends at Vital, and he has many other films after Vital. So I'll also be pulling from interviews, press releases, and other stuff, especially for the last episode. But these first two will be largely centered on the book, which largely is Shinya Tsukamoto talking about his own life and other people around him during whatever films. So uh, He was hugely influenced by Edogawa Ranpo, uh, who wrote children's books as well as books for adults. Ranpo's... Uh, <laughs> a very interesting guy. I've never read any of his stories. I've seen a ton of films that are adaptations either directly or uh, partial adaptations of his work his basically his name was um a japanese version of edgar Allan poe so it's okay. edgar rampo so <laughs> yeah and uh edgar rampo. yeah so he and it was also i think there was another it was another play on words japanese love wordplay in their names and things like yes. that and sadly for us American, well, non-Japanese speakers, well. yeah, we just were left baffled. Um, one of the directors we've talked about several times on the show, although not in depth, although we will, people, because I'm getting more books, but um, <laughs> is Taro Ishii, who is famous for his Pinky Violence films and his like ultra grand scope and budgets for like the most depraved, insane shit. And Horrors of Malformed Men is basically. A combination of Edgo, um, Edo, Edogawa Rampo stories and um, Killer Dwarf versus Blind Beast. That was two Rampo stories, which Shinya Tsukamoto also stars in. And yeah, he he like for all the shit I like, his tentacles run deep. He was a big influence on um, <laughs> tentacles run deep. Uh, wh- who's the guy that did Uzumaki? Uh, Junji Ito. Ito. Yeah, Junji Ito. The shirt I'm wearing currently? Yeah, right. So Junji Ito was hugely influenced by him. He was a a writer that was born before the turn of the 20th century and was writing up through the post-war era. His stories are beloved, and he has this weird undercurrent of sexual depravity, S&M, incest, all sorts of kinky shit. And Shinya talks about, from... Even those children's stories that he wrote, there was always this sort of like weird darkness and they would show up in like magazines where it'd be like, a you know, have a picture of a kid with a snake coming up his leg or like, you know, kids tied up in basements and stuff like this. And Yikes. Yeah, I know. It's, it was a different time. And um, not much has changed. When uh, Shunya started reading his, <laughs> his adult work as he got into his early teen years, he describes uh, the work gave him the same feeling as leaving through Essence. SM magazines gave him uh, when he would read them in high school as well. And I would assume our listeners know this, but if you don't, like, Japan loves SM stuff. Like, they're crazy for ropes and bondage. Uh, 
I might have a few of those magazines myself. Or like, well, I bought you a whole book. Yeah, I know. I don't know why I'm playing coy. It yeah. basically permeates most of the art I do with Concrete Mascara now. Um, so, yeah, so that was... I just had to laugh. I was like, of course you looked at us in magazines. Yeah, it's it's like mean, our Playboy, so... But they're all artsier and better. It's just Japan. And the way they tie you up is, like, really pretty and well done. They'll use certain colored ropes and everything. Yeah, special knots. It's a whole art. There's so. a name for it. I... Kimbakushi, I think it is. And then there's another name, too. It depends on, like, what you're doing, but... Guys, I know this is an audio podcast, but we are both just cheesing so hard. (laughs) (laughs) It's true, it's true. So the other thing about Shinya that I've already mentioned is um, his love of kaiju films. So growing up, his favorite was Gamera. Because Gamera was was the hero of the kids. And I just had to laugh, because as a kid, I saw Godzilla films, but my mom, like, I loved Gamera, dude. I... And I'll never forget that I don't know which camera film it is in terms of like when it happens, but it's the one where part of it they're on the moon, the aliens kidnap yeah. his two kids and they shave their heads and like Gamera shows up, he's doing fucking flips on that pole. Gamera's nuts. And uh he's, he's like the hero version. If you guys don't know who Gamera is, he kinda looks like a hero version of Bowser mm. almost. He's a spiky turtle man with a long tail that has like spikes on it. It's he rules. But he can, like, suck in his feet, and then they turn into turbo jets, yeah. and he shoots through the sky. It's pretty sick. So, he, he also saw Godzilla films, but it was, Gamera was his fave. His mom would take him. So, th- when the Japanese film industry was still at its, at its height, like, they would, people went to the movies all the time, because, like, TV didn't have a lot to offer, etc., etc., and he talks about his mom would take him and his brother to, like, on every school holiday. That's what they would do. They'd have the day off. They'd go see a Gamera film. And that that was, when you look, we talked about it in your Yakuza film episode. They cranked out, like, you know, 10 films a year per studio, per genre, minimally. And it was more like 40 films a year because they were really coming out that fast because there was no home video. Like, nobody saw these films again unless yeah. they were... You know. Maybe we'll one day we'll do a full deep dive on the film industry in Japan and how like it changed through the years. It is super interesting, especially when they get to the direct video stuff yeah. and how they wanted to skirt like censorship and things like that. But yeah, I mean, Nikatsu famously abandoned all films except for porno films and like came out with the Roman porno line in the seventies and eighties, which was just romantic pornography. And and then we got so many of the films that I've come to enjoy today. <sighs> But, yeah, um, Shinja talks about, like, they, you know, and it's funny. I'll show you the pictures, but, I mean, they're in their little Sailor Boy uniforms. They've, he's got pictures of himself as a kid with his brother and stuff and his mom. And th- they wanted so badly, they would sell Gamera and Godzilla action, like, well, essentially action figures at the movie theater, but they were too shy to ask their mom to buy them for them. So they always went home empty-handed. And, um, they should sell action figures at American theaters. They make so much goddamn money. Yeah, they would. So, but as he got older, he favored Godzilla, and you know, I think that happens for everybody. So, although we were talking about the guy who worked on the '90s Gamera films, which were like the edgy Gamera era, uh, is the guy who co-directed uh, Shin Godzilla. Shin Godzilla. Yep. So there you go. He was the special effects director for those, but. Shinya talks about his probably biggest influence or one of the biggest influences in his work throughout the whole thing, and especially all of his, the first half of his filmography, you could say easily, is the show Ultra Q. And Ultra Q was the precursor, it was the direct precursor to Ultraman. And it was created by a special effects wizard, Eiji uh, Suburaya, Suburaya, Suburaya. 
And he was the guy who created Godzilla, like the character uh, for Toho. And so he went off and created his own company and said, I'm going to make a TV show. And he called it Ultra Q. And it was basically a essentially a monster of a week kind of a show. And it was a cross between the Twilight Zone and... The Twilight Zone and The Outer Limits, where a team of supernatural investigators check out new phenomena each episode, which are generally kaiju, but not always. That sounds fucking awesome. Yeah. I didn't know about Ultra Q. Yeah, that's what I have on pre-order. It's coming this month. So, guys, if we just, like, stop recording for two months, it's because we're just watching Ultra Q. Yeah, so Ultra Q, there is no Ultraman. It's just, like, essentially... um, UDM or whatever they call it in the different iterations of Ultraman, but the it's it's like uh, Monarch is in the new American Godzilla films. Like it's this you know sort of extra government uh, agency, agency that yeah. deals with these phenomena. And Shinya talks about there was essentially what he felt to be a surrealist and Dada influence in the show, and some of the episodes like the monsters, the solutions, the whole nature of the issues were. Uh, unusual and playful and bizarre and surreal and that influenced him a lot too because he was in high school at this point well the show came out when he was six but he it was rerun and sort of as he got older and watched more of it could see like you know influences and stuff like that um most of the times the monsters or whatever force destroy symbols of human progress and uh, industry and things like that. So oil refineries, skyscrapers, it's like all the kaiju stuff, but there's a political sort of element behind it because the, the people that created it were kind of saying, and and even explicitly in some of the episodes, like, you know, maybe mankind has gone too far. Maybe we need to respect the earth, like all that stuff. A lot of things which will directly affect the themes of Tsukamoto's work in the future. So his second biggest influences, which, like, not surprising, but at the same time, I was like, dude, this guy fucks so hard, <laughs> were cartoons, specifically Lupin the Third. Fucking A, right. Right, exactly. Triton of the Sea, which I've never seen, and then the Sensational Harris, Hoshi of the Giants, Tomorrow's Joe, and Gigantor, or... Gigantor. I, well... Well, yeah. I know. Gigantor. But I, I, I see that, and if, if it was to be pronounced Japanese, that would be Gigantor. Yeah, so I yeah. couldn't help myself. But, um, yeah, so Gigantor, a.k.a. Iron Man number 28. So, which is, like, how the Japanese original title translates. So it's like, you read this, and I think to myself, like, it's so... like He's his, the weeb who became a good director. Well, not, it's not just even that, but it's, like, way to take the coolest influences and make an even cooler thing. Yeah, that's true. For those who have seen Tetsuo, it's like, oh, how is this even remotely shocking? Like, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, giant monsters, destruction of cities, like, the, the fight between the natural world and the, the city urban world, the oppression of the urban world. Like, it's all, it's all here. Like, it was what he was literally living and seeing and all this growing up. And um, Gigantor is about a child who controls a giant robot created by his father and uh tomorrow's joe is about a rookie boxer um the sensational harris and hoshi of the giants are also about like basically young boys who are um like the heroes and adventuring and trying to find themselves and like sort of better the world and he really identified with those kinds of characters he saw himself as like this hero against impossible odds and 
as a young kid, it was more about like the tensions in the home, the tensions with your classmates, those kinds of things. Right. But as it got older, that was really true in a lot of ways. Um, you know, if you want to make it a more Western comparison, the David and Goliath kind of a thing to a point. But yeah, so like Gigantor, Tetsuo, come on, like, are you fucking me? You know. I am not currently fucking <laughs> Are you fucking with me? Whatever. Sometimes <laughs> I skip some words. You fucking me? <laughs> you you gotta me, be butt fucking me right now. <laughs> so, as a result of his love of cartoons and also this uh, soon-to-be burgeoning industry of TV kaiju stuff, but also eventually the tokatsu stuff, which is like the what Power Rangers comes out of. Yeah. The masked heroes. There's uh, Kikator... There's Ultraman. There's like a bunch of other ones. It's like Phantom Man, Mirror Man. There's Golden Bat. Is an earlier Beetleborgs. There's a bunch of stuff that Saiban ended up stealing and bringing Saban. over. Saban ended up stealing and bringing over here. It was yeah. They so like how big Power Rangers was here in the '90s is still it's all that stuff is still pretty big over there, and they even do like live shows and everything. Oh, yeah. yeah. So that's all pretty cool. And anyways, he was into all that stuff. He wanted to be an animator before he wanted to be a director. That was his initial dream. I feel like that's a pretty classic Japanese kid dream. Like, I'm going to be an animator. So, so yeah. So, those are those are just kind of like to hit some of the, the big influences. And I talked about his brother, but I want to talk real quick about his dad, uh, Kazuo. And I apologize. I think my Japanese pronunciation is generally pretty good. If we have Japanese listeners and we butcher it, we're sorry. It's not intentional. So We love you and your culture. Yes. So, Kazuo Tsukamoto. His dad was an art school graduate. And to put it bluntly or glibly, he was a bit of a prick. <gasps> yeah. And uh, basically, his whole thing was like, yeah, I've got a wife so that she can raise my kids. But I'm not about to work my ass off to spend money on my family when I could spend it on myself. So, it was like... <laughs> He talks about how when he was growing up, like his dad bought this sick red sports car and then they were eating like, you know, kombini uh, prepackaged snacks for dinner. And his dad's like out jet sitting around all night. And he would mostly he like, you know, got up. He was a salaryman. He was out early and home late and like, you know, and basically was minimally involved in raising his family other than to criticize everybody and tell them all their faults. And, uh, you know, he had fancy clothes, fancy car, fancy friends. He was also, as Shinya learned later, like, he grew up in a tough... You know, his father was young, as most people were. It was like that kind of baby boomer generation-esque yeah. in, in Japan. But he grew up like a tough, hard street gang lifestyle um, in a different outside of Tokyo and things like that. So his dad was like a, you know, had his own, like, heavy shit going on to a point. And he was never, although he could be explosive and angry, he was never physically abusive with him or his brother. So, but he was, he was an asshole. And we'll get into it more as once um, Shinya starts with his, his artistic work. But basically, like, he was not super supportive, at least, and often had way more criticism than he had, like, positive reinforcement for him. Which is, you know, one of those things that's kind of, I think of that's on A Boy Called Sue. Where it's like, you mean a, we're talking about a Japanese artist whose father wasn't supportive <laughs> of him not getting a steady job? Yeah, I know. It, <laughs> it, it might be slightly shocking for us Western listeners, but um, yeah. So 
the best part about it is he describes like his dad's opinion was that if you're not first, you're essentially last. And so like <laughs> all I can think about is Ricky, Ricky Bobby. Bobby. Yeah, and it's like, well, hell, that don't make no sense. You can be second, third, fourth, fifth. Shinya, but, if you're not first, you're last, Shinya. Yeah, exactly. So it was like he said the quote that he gave or like the partial quote was basically if you're not first, you might as well be a hundredth. And so they really pushed the boys hard. And Shinya was pretty good in sports, but his brother was like naturally athletically gifted. So his brother talks about like growing up, it was easy to please his father for him because he just kicked ass in sports and his dad was like, you're doing great. And Shinya was like, I'm going to start doing arts. And his dad was like, well, you're last. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it was just continued to be difficult. And um, You're lucky we only got two of you. Yeah. Because you'd be extra last. The other thing that sort of, I think that their father either intentionally or inadvertently instilled, shocking as it might be, was a bit of a sibling rivalry with this whole thing. And again, so Shinya used to be into sports. Like I said, he drops out, especially when he gets his eight millimeter camera, which we're going to get to in a second. But, um, he and his brother fought like cats and dogs and they would do stuff that would just, so his brother threw like a shuriken or something like a homemade shuriken essentially. And it hit Shinya in the neck and it almost like sliced his, Holy shit. Yeah. What is that? Carotid or one yeah, of those jobs. Artery. Yeah. And, um, almost killed him. And then at a later date, like Shinya threw, um, I forget if it was a shovel. Did he yell no jutsu before? I don't think so. But he threw some kind of, like, heavy thing at him and, like, almost knocked him <laughs> dead. Like, hit him in the back of the head, like, really hard. And, you know, like, as kids do. But they would generally eventually make up. But in those moments, they would, you know... Shinya at least talks about, like, he was like, I truly hated my brother and, like, wished him to die. And, uh, you Can't know... Can't wait to have a second kid, Dick Fetty. Yeah, so... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I can think about, like, the fights I've had with my sister, and it, it is amazing that both of us have all our, f our fingers and toes. I she accidentally poked my brother in the eye once. He threw me into a closet. Please continue with your story. Yeah, yeah, my sister <laughs> my sister and I got in a fight about the the remote control, and she, like, cut my face open with her nails, so I proceeded to try to choke her to death. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, it was brutal. And then my dad, like, came in and grabbed me and threw me off. I, I'm generally, I go for, like, a choking kill. Like, that's kind of my... Because people really hate it when they can't breathe. They get all like... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they so. get real bent out of shape about it. Yeah. They, they get do. all slappy. And yeah. I just get hard. So, as I talked about, his dad was one to buy fancy stuff for himself. And Shinya talks about, basically, anytime his dad bought a fancy toy for himself, even if he didn't really like it, he would not let anybody else use it, play with it, touch it, or, you know, did it under his direct supervision. But the one thing that was different was he bought an 8mm camera when that was new and that whole like wave of making those kinds of movies was novel and like he was the first kid on the block for sure with that. And his dad really didn't, uh, lost interest very quickly. And so Shinya was able to borrow the camera from his dad and of all the things like he got lucky and it was like his dad was just normally cool with him so like go do whatever you want and so he started making um uh eight millimeter films when he was like 13 14 and basically he started and then he's been holding a camera essentially ever since so shinya essentially dropped all his other hobbies and this was like his now main passion one thing to know about 8mm films, the sound, you can't film with sound and you have to like sync in the sound after the fact. I don't know anything about real filmmaking, so like I don't <laughs> know how 
sound and the audio like i don't even understand how that like happens out of the same thing it's that's like magic to me <laughs> but anyways i i just know that these they're separate with an eight millimeter camera so he starts filming his first movies with his brother his classmates his friends and stuff like that he's in uh late elementary school or middle school early high school or whatever in the japanese japanese equivalent of like you know grade school yeah and um his first like real short it's not even a movie but it was called bruce koji which is like his brother and it was just his, bruce koji yeah it was just his brother like playing with nunchucks but like really cool and he did like edits where like it looked like his brother was like standing on the wall playing with the nunchucks and very like immediately sort of just out of youthful experimentation but also out of like you know how how do i make things look cool like he would he just started experimenting with eight millimeter and was kind of going beyond the um I don't know that there would have been a cliche at that point because the technology was so new. But, you know, it's like how, like, girls who take a photography class, it's all close-ups of flowers or, like, a drain pipe or whatever, and it's supposed to be deep. Like, yeah. he, he moved past that phase relatively quickly. Nunchucks on walls. Yeah. But, I mean, he, he would watch, so he would, like, study TV shows while they'd eat dinner or whatever and look at stuff and always be trying to figure out, you know, essentially how to recreate that. And his brother talks about how he would make him hold all these like ridiculously hot lighting rigs and all this like stuff that he made, you know, <laughs> as a fourteen year old to like try to make his films feel like real films. So I'm gonna talk about his eight millimeter films for a little bit now. And I have not seen any of these. I don't know that I think there's a couple of his college era ones that are available to for the general public, but basically he kept these all I essentially think under lock and key after that era was done. Like, once he went to university, he didn't show them to anybody, it seems like, until around 2002 when his wife got to see them for the first time and some other people. Yeah, and it could be one of those things where, like, with Carpenter, his one film that essentially would become Halloween, you can see at the University of California, I believe, if I remember oh, yeah, correctly. But you can't, yeah. yeah, but, like, you can't find it online anywhere. Yeah, right. So. Yeah, I don't, and I don't even think these are like that. Like basically, I feel like very few people have seen them, other than the people that were in them or saw them when he was a kid. Well, when you go to Japan, find him, and watch them with him. Good point. Good point. So his first proper film was made in 1974. It was a 10-minute adaptation of Shigeru Mizuki's manga uh, Genshi-san, aka Mr. Primitive, and. Although Shinya had written a full kaiju film script prior to making this movie, he realized he didn't really have any ability to make like a convincing kaiju suit. So yeah, he didn't have the ability or the money to make an actual kaiju suit, although he looked up how to like try to do that, you know, but it requires like molten vinyl and all this yeah. different stuff. And so they went with this he went with this manga adaptation because it's about a guy who wakes up who's like a primitive man, but also a giant and, uh, essentially terrorizes modern Tokyo. And so this giant caveman is his friend wearing a mask that he makes, but the mask was too heavy to just be like held back with strings. So they had to, they mounted the mask to his box, like his briefs. And then he had to wear the briefs like on his head. So she, <laughs> like, you know, the friend had to wear his underwear on his head with the mask. And then they tried to film he tried to film everything like head on so that you couldn't see, you know, behind the curtain essentially, which was not necessarily super effective. But at the end of this 10 minute film, there's a character that says, 
so let me put this into Shinya's words. He says, uh, they say that your very first film already can... Apologize for the dog. They say that your very first film already contains the elements that will return in your later work. And in the case of Genshi-san, Gen that's really true. The story revolves around a primitive force that suddenly shakes up a modern city. In the end, an American walks up to Genshi-san and says, Our cities have become too modern. Please come to America and destroy our cities too. Genshi-san replies, Okay, heads for the sea <laughs> to swim to the U.S., for a long time, I've had the idea to make Tetsuo in America, and I guess it would be logical sequel to Genshi-san. Now, we eventually did get Tetsuo the Bullet Man, which is quote unquote Tetsuo in America, although it's not. But we'll we'll talk about that we'll get whole there. thing, yeah. yeah, way way down the line. But I thought that was a really interesting and kind of you know beautiful quote. So that's his first little thing, and it's like like you know like he says, the seeds are already sown. His next uh, eight millimeter film is called Kyoto. Kyodai Gokiburi Monogatari, a.k.a. Giant Cockroach Story, which is from 1975. Uh, so, great title. Yeah. So his first film's 10 minutes. His next film is 50 minutes. So he does this 50-minute film, but it, like I said, he can't record the audio simultaneously, so he has to go back and do it. The film takes place in an apartment building and the sort of looming backdrop threat is that there are these giant cockroaches killing and running amok and whatever, but they can't film the giant cockroaches so that you never see the giant cockroaches. And it instead revolves around these four people who are trapped in the apartment. And it's really about like a romance adolescent or teen romance kind of a thing. But the girl that he used in the filming with it couldn't come back to do the vocal line. So he had to do all the female voices himself so he has like a conversation with himself, like as his character, but then as the female. We need character, to get away from these giant cockroaches. We sure do. Oh my god, they're so scary. Yeah. So like, and he talks about he was again trying to just keep keep a straight face, keep it together <laughs> while he was doing it. Uh, it was imperfect, but it was a lot of fun. I would give anything to see that. There are the the sort of aspect of apocalyptic nightmare monster thing happening during a teen romance was essentially the same concept of Hiraku the Goblin, which was his second proper film, which we'll get into next episode. But again, you can see the precursor stuff in his early short films to the films he would develop later. His next eight millimeter film was Subasa uh, or Subasa and AKA wing from 1975 uh, an 8mm film about two friends who want to fly, so they build an airplane, they turn a bike into an airplane in order to accomplish that goal. But at the same time, they're like really young boys, they're in their early teens, and they want to look cool more than anything else. So they like want to fly, but they're also like trying to get poon, you know, as much Hell as a 14 year old can during it. And. Shinya talks about, you know, from this, he kind of wanted to uh, move away from maybe a little bit this kaiju thing, but kind of focus on the relationships and not even the relationships, but the feelings of the characters and like conveying how characters feel. Right. And so that was his, his focus. Um, and he accomplished that, to, you know, I mean, it's a, he did this when he was 15. So it's like, yeah. it's not perfect, but it lays the groundwork. So that's Subasa. It was influenced by the film Bitterness of Youth by Tatsumi Kumashiro, released in 1974 um, by Nukatsu, which is one of the studios we talked about, the Roman por porno studio. And 
I want to talk a little bit about that movie because I have not seen it, but it was a, made a huge impression on Shinya. So it was the first non-kaiju film he had ever seen. And it's about a young man who kills his girlfriend after she becomes pregnant. And brutal. Yeah. It's, I think there's more to it than that, but it's the sort of classic like youth and rebellion. The 1960s in Japan, especially had a ton of movies about young kids being wild. And then that's a concern and theme that has continued on visitor Q touches on it. I mean, yeah. it's, it's still like a current Japanese thing all about Lily Chow Chow, same kind of thing. But he considers that to be his third favorite film of all time. His first favorite film would be Seven Samurai by Akira Kurosawa from 1954. It's one of my favorite movies. I've never seen it, much to my yeah. uh, failures. Well, we got five it. hours to spend together. Yeah. We'll yeah. Uh, sit down and watch it. And then his second favorite film switches between Taxi Driver, Blade Runner, or Intentions of Murder, which is a film by Shohei Imamura, who was the mentor for Takashi Miike. And directed a ton of cool films like The Pornographers, Eel, Vengeance is Mine, and a bunch of other awesome stuff. So, if you haven't seen, if you don't know what Taxi Driver is, or how, how do you not know? I'm just saying, like, I, you you name these three things. The only thing I could think of was like, I really hope there's no one listening to this that's never seen Taxi Driver or Blade Runner. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how you'd get this far. I mean, Taxi Driver is an awesome movie. And for Power Electronics dudes love it and love to post pictures of Robert De Niro looking edgy from that era. And it has a bunch of cool like characters and character actors and all sorts of stuff. And I'm sure I, I have not seen it since high school. If I rewatched it now, I'd be like, this is a masterpiece of filth and, and whatever. But Blade Runner obviously is one of the primary influences in the show. I think I've talked about it a fair amount. I mean, if you're into sci-fi... You're either a Blade Runner guy or you're a different kind of sci-fi guy. Without Blade Runner, cyberpunk as we know it today probably wouldn't be as ingrained into culture as it is. Sure. Especially, I mean, everyone's got their dick hard for cyberpunk 2077. I know I fucking do. And a lot of that looks like fucking Blade Runner. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I don't... That's an episode we could do, but well, anyway, yeah. So those are those are his favorite films. Now, there's no kaiju movie amongst any of those, but that doesn't really matter. I mean, I wouldn't consider most Godzilla films to be my favorite films of all time, but they have a huge influence on like what I like, and you know. Anyway, but um, so in his teens, he started going to the cinema regularly. He was mostly seeing Japanese films, but also saw some Western ones too. And his brother came, even though they started to drift apart as he uh, was making more and more movies and all that, like, they drifted apart in some ways, but Koji was always there to, like, help him make those movies, or almost always there. He was almost always there to go see the movies with him. And while, especially once they hit, like, university and high school age, they really started to drift more for a time, there was always that, like, shared love of cinema and movie making in and of itself that kept them close. Akira Kurosawa made the biggest impression on Shinya Tsukamoto. I mean, that's not shocking to hear that no. somebody from that era would be... Because, I mean, Akira Kurosawa, if you don't know, is the most legendary Japanese director of all time. He was an, also an auteur himself and did things that, you know, basically did things the way he wanted and backed it up with an incredible vision, an almost spotless record for like 20 years. He just killed it with every movie 
and had this working relationship with Toshira Mifune, which is super legendary and created some of the best films Japan's ever seen. And don't worry, guys. Directly after this series is done, we're doing a 35-part series on Kurosawa. Yeah. So Kurosawa is like <laughs> the guy that allows Criterion Collection to exist, essentially, <laughs> and stuff like that. It's like him and Ingmar Bergman. They're like the two probably most famous international film auteurs of all time outside of... Um... Moving on. I digress. So the next film he made was called Daunton, a.k.a. Cloudy Sky. That was 1976. And... Kurosawa's films that he was starting to see with more frequency were making a big impression, especially when he was still in his black and white era. And so he focused on trying to get more of a high contrast black and white style to his 8mm films through lighting and uh, the sets and everything, which would come into play when you, for those who have seen Tetsuo, it's all high contrast black and yep. white in all its fucking glory. It was an adaptation of a manga by Tatsuhiko Yamagami about two anti-war activists in the near future who are imprisoned and tortured for their anti-war activities, and it features a rape scene, um, which was, I can only imagine, would be an interesting thing to film at 16 years old with your classmates. His parents, who from the beginning were watching all of his films, did not particularly care for this one, and what? his mom was exceptionally... Uh, displeased with it and he talks about he he was very sensitive to what his parents thought about what he did which was um a brutal uh, sensitivity to have considering how uh, critical his father was but when his mom didn't like stuff too it was an even bigger deal and one of the things i've kind of glossed over but we'll come back a little bit is he has a deep love and respect for his mother and um her like willingness to go so far to raise him and his brother when his dad was, you know, he had respect for his dad as like a man, but not as a father. If right. That makes yeah. sense. That makes perfect sense. And, um, you know, he describes himself as having an almost edible complex as it relates to his mom that shows up later in his treatment of women and other work. And most of the time in his movies, which sort of culminates with the snake of June, like his female characters are, stronger if not as strong as the male characters not necessarily in their characterization but like as like like in different ways and are generally like the sources of good or light or whatever or just a force in the films for like largely inept and um men who are like imploding in their environments so but yeah he did that one it, people it was not well received in his family or with his classmates as much he moved on to the next. Except that one weird one. Yeah, right. He's like, yo, could you make a whole movie for that one scene for me? Yeah. Um, so his next film, his next 8mm film, is Jigoku Kumachi Shobin Geshuku Nite Tonda Yo, a.k.a. Flying in a Helltown Piss Lodge, which is a wild, nonsensical title. I love it. That was My parents hated the, rape, the movie I made with rape in it, so... Let's make one that has Piss Lodge in the name. Yeah, right. So this is from 1977. It was the following year. Uh, the original cut of the film was 150 minutes long. Jeez. Yeah. And the eventual, like, the, the regular cut, quote-unquote, that he made of it. I can't wait to hear what this movie's about. Was 120 minutes long. Well, that's the thing. So I, I, I remember reading this book and then rereading it for this episode. I was like, what? And then it describes the movie, and I was like, oh, that's, huh. So, um, 
as of vital, it was the longest movie he had ever he's ever made. I don't know if that still holds true sense, but I'm pretty sure it does. His films are typically 90 minutes or shorter, often hovering in like the 70 to 90 minute range. And um, his second longest film was vital at 90 minutes when this book was written. It's based upon basically it's an amalgamation of stories that he had heard, read, seen of artists during the pre and post-war period sort of like outsider artists in the Tokyo area all who were like essentially starving and slightly bizarre in whatever way and so the main character is played by like you know just another 17 year old classmate but he plays this starving artist who who has this kind of um he describes him as a myopic painter who dies young I don't know what a myopic painter is but uh having been unable to see this film you know i might be able to report back in the future but it was hugely influenced by kurosawa's uh ikiru which is one of his most famous films the lowest depths and doda skaden and the last scene of the film is an homage to the last scene of zadoichi i don't know which he says it was the an homage to the last zadoichi film but i guess he means at that time because i know they've made like a 400 zadoichi films yeah since then but the main character dies and then he's taken away on a junk cart and i don't know if that's the first zadoichi film or whatever i've never seen zadoichi film it was loved by his classmates his teachers his family everybody thought it was great he talks about like people being red-faced with excitement and he would he was smart like in high school he was he talks about he was um head of the library club like at high school so that then he could just like change the rules for the library and like show <laughs> his own movies in the library and stuff like that, or like have screenings of other films from the get go would like garner support and interest and then would rent out public spaces or or like rentable spaces essentially to like show his movies and then he would make and sell tickets to his family members, his friends, and try to get people out and was always trying to like bring people in to see his films and find out what the reaction was like what moved them what didn't you know like what was he doing right the true indie indie of fucking filmmaking that is incredible yeah no i know and And at 17 and and before that from like 15 to you know 17 he's already doing this like yeah he's an industrious dude and this is a guy who never has never made a film that he didn't want to make has never he's done it always by his own rules his own money and everything else so um it was so popular and so much buzz hype got hyped around it in his high school that he eventually was nominated and to be on a show called Ginza Now, which highlighted young artists in the Tokyo area. And so he was on the the TV show. He was like a you know talking head guest kind of thing. They played clips from the movie. Like imagine being 17 years old and being on TV and this cool shit. And he reflects fondly on. Well, fondly to a point on all of his 8mm films, but describes himself during this period and really up through Hiroko uh, as a collage director, basically saying that, like, you know, he recycled elements of all these different films that he was watching and loving and, and basically, like, you know, just sort of uh, turning his influences and his interests into these homages via 8mm short film. I mean, that's exactly what. Tarantino says he does is he straight up steals from other movies to make his own. Yeah, and I mean, tons of movies do that. And in the age before the internet, one of the things that, not to get totally off topic, but like Star Wars, especially the first Star Wars, like there are all these scenes in the first Star Wars that are 
direct references, homages to Akira Kurosawa's films. And because George Lucas was one of those people that loved film, like he had seen tons of Westerns and tons of Japanese films. And he later went on to help um, when they did Ron, like uh, Kurosawa was out of money and old and took forever to fucking make it. And so he got money from Spielberg and Lucas and all these international directors. I think Scorsese and Coppola also were involved. And, um, you know, when people saw Star Wars, not only was it like a universe they'd never seen before, but it was pulling from film references that for most people were completely like they didn't even know existed. Yeah. And so you can look at it now and like watch a YouTube video on like what every scene. Space Samurai. Yeah. Whatever like uh stolen scene is from. But, you know, that was like it wasn't just stealing. It was like skill. It was yeah. like, you know, spending the time to go out to find what to steal and everything else. And then, you know, internalizing it in your own movies. Like, I don't I have no issue with that. I mean, I don't most, think it's wrong in any way. Yeah. Most art is basically built upon the backs of the people that came before you. And then, like, you, you know, hopefully find your own voice rather than continue to ape the masters. Right. Of all of his early eight millimeter films, the only one uh, Shinya even considers the potential of remaking would be uh, Jigoku Kumachi because of, I think, his fond memories of it and the positive reaction and just, just generally liking the story. I'd like to see the giant cockroach one, but... Yeah, I know, that, that sounds kind of fun. Right. So. I mean, imagine your second film's about, like, giant cockroaches in a build. Like, it's so... I like I love that he knows, he's aware of all the constraints of what he's trying to do and is still so ambitious to make a 50-millimeter, like, or a... 50-minute, 8-millimeter film about, like, four people trapped in a room. It's like Cloverfield, you know well, what I mean? When you when you describe that film, the only thing I could think of was Shivers. Oh, I was thought you were going to say Joe's Apartment, but... No. <laughs> Although, but no, but, like, Shivers, because, like, there is that love story that's going on in it, plus they're trapped in this giant apartment building with these weird slug monsters that make you horny. Yeah, that movie's great. Um, but his next two are mark the end of his first era of filmmaking uh and he did not go out with a bang but more of a whimper so the next one is shin subasa which is wing two 1978 it was the first film he made at university it was essentially um a remake of the first subasa that he made and he made it with people at university and they still call it wing two yeah like evil dead (laughs) two yeah Pretty much. Yeah, basically. And so, and he was obsessed with this idea of flying and it kind of ended by the time he made this movie because he realized so many people had already covered the subject and with more skill. But the the film itself was more skillfully done. It looked better, the whole nine yards. But he said the people that were involved, by the time he, he hit university level, like everybody was doing their own art thing. No one really cared. It wasn't like being in high school where everybody who was involved, it felt so close, you know? And so the lack of passion resulted in a lack of emotion in the film. And he felt that it was a failure and was very disheartened by the whole process of it. And then the following year, he made Hasu no Hana Tobe, AKA Lotus flower fly, which doesn't have to do with flying in the sense of the prior movie. And it was the last film he did as a teenager. He did it as, at 19. And it's about a fight between Yakuza, a Yakuza gang and a theater troupe. And again, it was technically proficient, but emotionally lacking. And he essentially left filmmaking in this depressed funk of like, I'm becoming an adult and I don't even like making movies anymore. And I'm only 19 years old. And so he quit for the time being. Kind of. It's funny because he says, like, oh, I was totally done. But then immediately thereafter, we're going to start talking about his playwriting and how 
as soon as he was doing, like, when he was doing plays the whole time, he was like, I can't wait to get back to making movies. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, we all have a, it's not shocking to hear mixed messages as far as the narrative of his own life. Right. Like we all sort of do that, but. So, playwriting, playwriting, play performing, theater acting, whatever you want to call it, this, this arena. Or theater. Yes, as uh, Oliver Reed, no, no, uh, Lawrence Olivier, I don't know, Kenneth Branagh, yeah. you know, like the thespians, yeah. the uh, Shakespearean trained actors, etc., etc. So, Where art thou, Japanese samurai sword? Yeah, exactly. So his first stage performance was at 10 years old, and he fell in love with um, acting at that time. He was in love with just like the theater itself, the whole building, like looking up and seeing the scaffolding, the whole nine. Uh, one of the things that I don't think I really mentioned, and that's failure on my part, he's basically in almost every movie he makes, and it's... When I first came to him, I did not like that. I thought, like, wow, what an egotist. But part of it's just necessity, and it's also, like, he's a really good actor, and yeah. he kind of just plays Shinya Tsukamoto in most of his roles, but there are variations on that, and he, he has the ability to have some depth, for sure. Like, it's not just Christopher mm -hmm. Walken forever. Uh, kind of a thing but yeah so like he and and it's described by all of his cast and crew like when he's acting he he acts as an actor and when he directs he directs his director but with an understanding of what it is to be an actor which makes him a better director and have like a real ability to like work with his actors in a way that other directors don't like kevin smith So in high school, he wrote, directed, and performed plays with his, a school theater troupe who were really well known um, from that school, but he craved to do something more experimental. He was influenced early on by the experimental playwright and performance artist Juro Kara, who wrote like these confrontational and like uh, edgy plays, and then he and some other troops at the time would perform them by like bringing up big tents in public parks or near temples or in the street or whatever. And the police would come and try to shut it down. And they would like, you know, then they would put up their tent somewhere else and have everybody go there. And the whole way it worked apparently was like, once you got the tent up and the audience was inside, the cops couldn't stop it. But if they got there before the audience did, then they could stop it. So that they would have like decoy tents and all this shit. Guerrilla warfare theater. Yeah, exactly. Seriously, it was really cool. It, it, it was, you know, it was the 60s in Japan. Right. They had their own counterculture thing going. And this guy, Kara, was a big influence with all that kind of stuff. And that's going to really come up in a second. So I talked about already, like, he would, he was, he really knew how to glad hand with club members. And clubs in Japan are like a whole, again, like, not to get too deep into it, but like, they're a big deal in high school and in college. And like, when you're a member of a club, like, you have like real responsibilities. And it's like these little civil organizations and they can actually get things done. And so he'd be, like, friends with the newspaper guys or, like, the AV guys or whatever so he could, like, run commercials for his plays or have people print tickets for him or have people print flyers. Like, he knew how to, you know. Schmooze. Yeah, schmooze and grease the wheels and all that stuff, which I just think is, like, oh, man. Like, for especially for, like, the introverted character he often plays in some ways and, like, the mostly calm but, like, at the same time explosive kind of a guy, he... Um, He's so good at, like, working with people. It's really impressive to me. The man was made to make movies. Yeah. So, Yume Maru uh, was the name of his college theater group that he started, 
which means dream circle. He started it in 1978, his first year at university. The one question I don't have an answer to is, I don't understand the difference between universities and college. They say university over and over in the book. I don't know if that's a European thing or if that's a Japanese thing, whatever. I'm using them interchangeably, but university is the word they use. So if there is a difference, what that's maybe it's more prestigious or maybe a university is more catered to certain things as well as a college is. Yeah. I think in the States it's like colleges are state run universities are private. So, but anyway, so when he started making theater, like when he started his theater group in college, a lot of his high school friends had also gone to the same college as him or the same university rather. But even the ones that didn't still stayed involved in his theater stuff. And he basically directed all of his own plays because he wrote them. He came up with the ideas. He came up with the costumes partially. And so he talks about like he was always kind of the director just because that's nobody else wanted to step up. And he was like, I did most like I did a lot of the work and brought the vision. So like, why wouldn't I be the director? And I mean, you got to have a little bit of an ego to do this stuff, although I can agree with that. Um, He had more reaction to his work as a playwright and a director and an actor in plays than he did with his films like and he would get immediate reaction from the audience like you're you're there in this guerrilla theater kind of a setting like or even the the school settings but seeing people and seeing how they're reacting in real time like as you're doing a thing and he really liked that a lot uh through his work with uh yumi maru he met and brought in people who would later be in especially his early films. Nobu Kanaoka, who was a female, she was drawn to him after seeing some of his early works and thought, like, wow, this guy is, like, he's like Kara. He's got that edge. He's kind of wild. I like that. Uh, she was in The Adventure of Denshu Kozu, Kozo, which is, like, his immediate precursor to Tetsuo that we'll talk about in a second. She was in Tetsuo 1. She's the woman with glasses who attacks Tetsuo uh, yes. in the subway. She's in Tetsuo 2 in a lesser role, and she's in Tokyo Fist. I'm going to bring this up now because it's in my notes, but she actually got involved uh, in his theater stuff after graduating. But Kei Fujiwara, who is the main female in Tetsuo, and then later did her own thing directing Organ, which we've reviewed on the show and later yep. the, the movie Id. She met him in his um, post-college theater group, and then... Tomuro uh, Toguchi, who is the guy who plays Tetsuo in the both of the Tetsuo films. He's in Denshukozo, in Tokyo Fist, Bullet Ballet, a bunch of Takashi Miike films, including Full Metal Yakuza. He's his own director, is in a rock band, is like a totally fucking rad dude. He met him through theater. So, like, theater was a big end for actors for him. <laughs> and... One of the things that made him his theater group, Shinya's group, different than other theater groups at his university was that he didn't attract other actors and like theater majors. He attracted visual arts majors and other people like that because he was kind of doing wilder stuff and didn't need as much traditional. He wanted people with skill, but he wanted people with like flair. And also everything was DIY, so it was like, bring me a seamstress, you know, get me yeah. somebody who can do makeup but also can act and all that kind of stuff and most of the people in most of his productions not as much now but even so now like he he always works with volunteer casts volunteer well no his actors get paid now but 
like volunteer actors and volunteer staff members and so you can work for as long as you want and leave and whatever but like basically if you're working on a, a Shinya Tsukamoto production like you're working your ass off for six months a year like some long ass period of time and you're working like you know 12 hour days making a movie every fucking day like it's insane so uh he performed like a shitload of plays but basically they were three plays and there was just a shitload of variations of them so the three plays were the first one was about uh plastic surgery and in the end everyone in the city has the same face through plastic surgery and variations on like that general plot the second one was the end of the 20th century where children sell adults suicide plans so like you know kind of futurama-ish suicide booth type of thing what? No, so these are just both awesome. <laughs> I know, right? And then um, The Adventure of Denshu Kozo, which is his first film, which is about a boy who has an electric pole growing out of his back and then accidentally gets sucked into the future a little bit where a trio of vampires rule the world and are creating a bomb that will blow up the sun or like black out the sky so that they can rule in eternal darkness for all time. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, it just feels good just to hit my ears. Just... Yeah. So he, while he performed in some regular stages, they were early on building, he was interested in doing street stage performance type stuff. So it's not like street performance where you're just in the open air, but instead like they would build, they would bring these rigs and then put up a stage and have essentially inside a giant tent, like almost like a circus tent kind of a thing, but smaller the stage and do the play inside. Right. So that's like that's what this guerrilla theater looks like. So in order to do it with maximum efficiency and get the biggest bang for his buck as far as size, but also being able to break it down and set it up, he worked with architecture students at university, and they came up with a series of huge tri cardboard triangles that they would then piece together kind of like a honeycomb-ish type of like cyber hive whatever thing. And <laughs> he talks about it especially early on when they were like still getting used to the style of like putting it together, like fucking panels would just fall out mid performance <laughs> and all this stuff. And he was like, if it had ever rained, we would have been doomed because it would just all have crumbled around us, but it never rained. So we got lucky, which in Japan is a fucking miracle. So Shinya graduates in 1982. And when he graduates, he prepares himself for an adult life and decides to get a job in advertising. Boo. Yeah. So, while he wanted to go continue with theater and filmmaking, although he hadn't done films in three years, he realized that basically he was going to have to get some capital and money together through having a real job. And he, of course, still lived with his parents, and so they were expecting him to get a real job. So his dad actually got him an interview with a really good production company, but he decided at the end to go with the first job he secured him for himself because he didn't want to, if he had left, if he was going to leave the job in the future, like he would, he wouldn't be able to save face and it would like negatively affect his father and like his father wouldn't be able to save face, which is like, you know, Japanese yeah. cultural thing. And um, essentially it would reflect poorly on his father and he would be fucked and disowned forever. So he went with his first job. And he did all sorts of like commercial work where he would film commercials and take pictures. And he, the one thing he got into that he still does to this day is he does voiceovers for commercials because he has this incredibly like measured and cool speaking voice that 
like if you especially some of his lines in Tetsuo the Bullet Man I think it comes out really well although it also you could hear it a bit in um Shin Godzilla tonight like he 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 can talk with like some emotion but it's still like measured and cool yes. sounding and in Tetsuo the Bullet Man like he'll be like let's party and just I don't know the way he says shit you're like oh that makes a lot of sense and so he got into all that work and was um did that for a couple years going as far as to do um a series of uh advertisements for Nikon cameras uh, suites, ornamental lights, Casio keyboards, fur coats, amusement parks, and um, advertisements that featured Latoya Jackson shot in Los Angeles. Latoya in Jackson, eighty-four. Yeah, so he he got the okay from his company to do uh, his theater work, but basically he couldn't really put on the plays the way he wanted to. While like you know it was work in Japan is no no small thing. Like yeah. you know if you're if you're especially a young person. It, you're going to be working like an insane yes. amount of hours. You can actually get commended for falling asleep on the job because you're working so hard. Exactly. So I was a little bit confused on the dates, but I think I have this right. So 82, he's out of school. And by 85, he's quit his first job. And before quitting, he had this sweet spot period with his parents because, like I said, he was still living at home. But his dad stopped giving him such a hard time all the time because he was like, well, at least he got a real fucking job, like a real man kind of thing. While his brother was basically in high school for part of that and college for part of that, but still excelling as an athlete. And, um, that all went to shit when he quit his job to go be a theater guy full time huh. and then took a job as a cook to bring into some like small income. Didn't see that coming. Yeah. So he worked really hard and he was good at his job and all that stuff. I mean, he's a naturally talented artist. So like being in advertising is not shocking that he would be good at that, but he saved and pinched all his pennies that he could in order to then dump it all into his guerrilla theater stuff. And he started his new theater crew, which is uh, essentially Kaiju Theater or Kaiju Shiata. So he picked up basically where he left off, uh, focusing on the same three plays that he was working on in um, college. And he picked up, as I mentioned previously, Kei Fujiwara and her husband Kenji Nasa during this time as members of the company and um, Kenji Nasa had been a member of Kara's company, who was the avant-garde theater guy that uh, Sugimoto was so inspired by. So that was like an extra big win for him. And they set about to build an even bigger theater. And not only was it like a mobile theater, but it was in the shape of a giant sea kaiju. And here's a picture of it. That's literally the tent. So oh, it's like a, fucking A. Yeah, it's, it's like a giant monster head coming out of the top of the tent. And since they were all older, everybody had a little bit more money, or at least some of the people did. They had, you know, a bigger, quote-unquote, budget to do their costumes with. And right. they also all, a lot of the people involved had some experience working with Sugimoto before this. So they knew what he was into, what his plays were about, and they, like, really went about refining all this stuff. And they kind of accumulated this growing uh, inventory of costumes and everything. And they would just essentially rehearse like five days a week these plays and then perform them every single weekend for six months at a time and he did this uh first with his one play um about plastic surgery and then he did it about the adventure of Densho kozo for the second half of i think 85 into 86 and so they were just like drilling this stuff over and over and over so i know that his parents kicked him out of the house when he quit his job but i'm not exactly sure when that 
happened if it was the same day or if it was a couple years later but somewhere in here he moves out of his parents house and his parents have like largely disowned him they're just like what the fuck are you doing we can't believe you quit a good job you're doing this theater stuff again and dumping all your money into it and you're like stop being a fucking weirdo yeah Go back to work we're not super thrilled with it but koji left home around the same time and he would go and see a lot of these plays and was it talks about how proud he was of the stuff that Shinya did because it was so it was exciting it was original and it was like you know basically all done with the sweat of his brow like there was no bullshit this was fiercely independent theater and Shinya picked up his eight millimeter camera when he moved out and kind of and assumed that he would return to filmmaking soon and that started in the uh autumn of 1986 specifically october so at this point is like i said his theater group had amassed such a huge inventory of costumes and all this stuff prosthetics and things like that for the stories they were doing he felt like he didn't want to do theater for the rest of his life but he also didn't want to throw all this stuff away so as a sort of getting back into it exercise they did originally this short the short eight millimeter film called phantom of regular size (laughs) <laughs> which was done in about four or five days and featured Tomaro Toguchi and Nobu Kanaoka. Now, I think that this movie is available on one of, as like a sort of extra on one of the Blu-rays or DVDs. I feel like it's been released. I'm really hoping to see it, but I haven't seen it yet. It essentially is just like a very minimal abstract version of what was going to be Tetsuo the Iron Man. And so Toguchi plays a salary man who then starts to have this metal transformation and then turns into the Iron Man. Huh. And some stuff happens in the subway and blah, blah, blah. But basically it's it's way more abstract and there's there was an idea that there was going to be this big mech battle, or not mech battle, but like monster battle at the end. Right. He didn't show up for the last day of filming, so Tsukamoto just used some other footage of them having dinner and then like superimposes stuff. But he employed all of the kind of experimental things he had learned doing theater and then also the tricks he had learned early on doing his eight millimeter films, but took it to new heights. And one of the things that he really started to screw with was like the way the stuff was framed and the way that the film itself was used and the speed at which things were shot to create like stop motion uh, look for stuff. So you see it a lot in Tetsuo the Iron Man, but there's like parts where it's like metal moving across the screen and it looks like stop motion. Yes. Except for it, it kind of is, but it isn't. And he will move the camera as well as the object. So it's like this, you know, you get like this very interesting movement it's of everything. Shot. Yeah, it's like really bizarre shit. And so he started to experiment with all these effects while he was doing it. And we you mentioned cyberpunk in blade runner so the idea of like cyberpunk had not really come fully into being and was right. there was precursors to it and i guess early cyberpunk stuff that had come out in japan at this point but he was not necessarily like shooting for a cyberpunk punk aesthetic and it wasn't something that had was not defined in japan at that point so right. you know like it, while Tetsuo the Iron Man is considered like the quintessential cyberpunk film, at least for J- Japan, it wasn't like he set out to make that. As often these genre-defining things yeah. are, they're just like products of what they are, and then later people are like, oh, that's cyberpunk. Probably the biggest influence on his, as far as experimental stuff goes, was the director Sogo Ishii, whose films I personally haven't seen, but I've heard of like 
all of them and they're really famous because they're early punk and cyberpunk stuff from japan crazy thunder road from 1980 burst city from 1982 he also did that 20,000 volt electric dragon movie with uh what is it sudanobu tadanobu uh the dude from who plays kakihara from each of the killer i can never get his fucking yeah like tada tadanobu ah fuck it's gonna kill me but anyways it's him and another guy it's like it's one of his more recent ones but he's got this very interesting like crazy style hard edits like you know just like nonsensical non-linear plotting you know imagery over um cohesive narrative that type of stuff and Sukumoto was had seen some of these early films and was starting to you know probably picked up some influence from from that stuff and just generally like the sort of Japanese punk movement and things like that that had come out this time but he he says that personally he doesn't really remember any one thing saying like oh I saw this and that really affected me but you know probably played a role at 18 minutes in length phantom of regular size again was just like a little shorty just to kind of get back in the mood but they immediately went from that into doing the adventure of dinshu kozo and while they were filming these movies they moved into kei fujiwara's apartment especially for dinshu kozu kozo dinshu kozo and then into tetsuo which we're going to cover next time but she lived in an apartment with her husband and they had this abandoned apartment next door. And so they used both locations to shoot like essentially almost all of both of these movies and the entire cast and crew essentially like lived in the apartment. So they would have 10 or 20 people sleeping in this one apartment with this, you know, couple, this newly relatively newlywed couple. And Kei Fujiwara was like she admired Shinya Sukamoto, but right. they also were equals, and there was like a whole interesting dynamic. Her husband was less thrilled about this whole thing. I imagine so. Yeah, yeah. So he apparently was. I mean, he was still an actor in Denshu Kozo and was involved and was apparently very gracious. And Shinya Sukamoto's, you know, very grateful to him. But I think that part of the reason Kei Fujiwara leaves after Tetsuo is that she had her own stuff she wanted to do and didn't want to be tied up with. Sukumoto forever but also I'm sure there were marital strains as a result of her probably professional relationship but I mean it sounds crazy it's like they apparently like there was not there was more people than there was to Tommy Matt's to sleep on kind of a thing and they would just shoot and shoot and shoot and by the end of each film like the crew would just essentially die off to like four or five people because they had to go on with their lives and do other yeah. stuff and whatever and it's part of why the movies are short but also like part of what makes them like, it's just, it's just, it's, it's fucking crazy to me to think of, like, doing this, you know? Like, you you just, whatever money you bring in, like, you're going to spend this until it's gone making this movie. It reminds me of that movie Bowfinger. If you ever saw that with Steve Martin, yes. Heather Graham, and that movie was a lot of fun. I imagine it's like that, but less comical. But yeah, so they go into the adventure of Dinshu Kozo, and as I described, it's about a guy and a boy with an electrical pole, and in his back and then he gets sent into the slight future to battle with these vampire trio that's the vampires i'll try to upload some of these pictures from the book to the fucking a right yeah instagram so that's um that's sukamoto and then that's uh mitsuru saga and that's tomoro toguchi with some old man makeup on but he's the guy who is tetsuo the iron man there's like a whole bunch of 
historical subtext I'm not even going to get into that relate to the story. But basically it's about a kid who comes to accept his sort of power and fight to overthrow the powers that be. And it's kind of a classic, you know, boy hero story, but also like embracing your inner freak and beast and, and has this kaiju element still again, cause he's like an outcast cause he's got an electrical pole growing out of his back <laughs> and all this shit. First, when you first described that, I'm just, I was just like, what? Yeah. So the, and this is the last thing I'm going to talk about for tonight. And then we'll, we're going to pick up with the big one next week, guys. So don't worry. We're going to cover Tetsuo. We'll get there. But you got to be good boys and wait. Yeah. Got to eat your dinner before you get your dessert. But Sukumoto had uh, submitted his film, The Phantom of Regular Size, to film festivals uh, or to a local film festival called PIA. And it hadn't gone anywhere. It didn't win any prizes. I don't even know if it was made it to the jury selection process and when he was a kid he had also submitted some of his films to smaller film festivals and things like that but there never had been really any reception for it but he submitted the adventure of dinshu kozu and this is where everything basically changed for him um the pia film festival was the foremost event for independent and amateur filmmaking at that time and a lot of the talents from 1980s had been discovered there and in 1988, when the film was considered, the jury consisted of former 8mm experimentalist filmmaker Kazuki Amori, filmmaker Shusuki Kaneko, actor Hiroshi Mikami, producer Takashige Ichisi, and critic Ken Okubo, and one of Japan's most renowned filmmakers, Nagisa Oshima. So, Oshima is the director of In the Realm of the Senses and uh, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, and a bunch of other stuff that's on the Criterion of Famous. In the Realm of the Senses is the movie that famously has all this unsimulated sex. It's about this couple that basically fuck themselves to death and is based on a true story. I've been wanting to watch that movie. Spoiler alert, it's the one where the girl cuts off the dude's dick after he dies and carries it around with her and brings it to different love motels for like a couple weeks after... He's dead, and then... Were we going to do an episode on that? Maybe. Yeah, probably. Anyways, he's kind of a big deal. He had done all those movies by this time, so he was, like, the big deal guy on the jury. So Shinya basically believes that he felt young and out of place in this film festival, and he thinks it kind of worked to his advantage for a couple different reasons. Oshima had been on the jury previously uh, or involved in festivals in which... He had screened, like, he had submitted his older films. Uh And so we think that kind of softened him up a little bit. And some of the other guys were... Amori was a contemporary of Sogo Ishii, who was that cyberpunk director I just mentioned. And he grew up making... You know, he was a former experimental 8mm filmmaker. And this was an 8mm film. And, you know, again, Tsukamoto had that... He had been making 8mm films. And some of the other people were involved in the kaiju... Uh, films tangentially and some of them went on to be involved in Japanese horror stuff like The Ring basically it was like the right kind of jury because they could partially see his influences and partially knew like this is this young upstart and you know these are the kinds of things that change people's careers he thinks though the kind of almost the biggest deal of it was like he made a movie that was entertaining and fun and wild and the rest of the movies were like a little bit more tepid and limp and he won the jury prize, and they wound up doing public screenings of the film, 
but being only 45 minutes in length, they tacked on Phantom of Regular Size and then also a short film that PIA made about uh, Shinya Tsukamoto called Tsukamoto Shinya 1000 Channel, which was a showcase of his work up to that point, uh, including his appearance on Ginza Now and some of his um, older 8mm film stuff. And so they did this sort of mega mix of his work up to that point, and then they showed it like in Tokyo in real theaters. And I mean, there was special screenings and stuff. But by the time he finished this movie, he had kind of he had found his voice. He had found how to work with minimal means to make the maximal product, and was essentially ready to knock it out of the park with Tetsuo the Bullet Man. Hell yeah! I'm kidding. Tetsuo the Iron Man. Hell yeah! And we will pick back up there next week. Oh, uh, hell yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I so badly wanted to cover Tetsuo the Iron Man this week, but as you listeners know and have just listened to about an hour and a half... We didn't. ...of all of the stuff leading up to it, there just wasn't enough time without making this an overbearingly long episode. And I think that as far as understanding Shinya Tsukamoto's work from Tetsuo onwards you kind of have to know his background because he clearly is a master of turning his influences a lot of which are sort of pulpy and whatever into cinema that's so much better than that and you mentioned Tarantino I think it's a lot of that same kind of thing like it's a love for an era which is basically 60s and 70s cinema and cartoons turned in filtered through a modern lens that uh, grapples with some of the same issues and uses some of the same templates to tell very different stories or to deliver different messages or to deliver the same messages in new and powerful ways. If I can watch any of these early films between now and the next episode, I'll give a brief rundown of my thoughts, but they're mostly completely unavailable, so that's highly unlikely. Uh, we will be getting into a lot of films next time. And a it's lot. Gonna be, it's going to be less about what's happening in uh, Shinya's life personally and more about what was happening as his uh, he developed his craft and we'll focus on some of the stories of how the films were made and, and especially I'm going to talk with most of them about their international distribution, what happened with international film festival festivals and how Tetsuo the Bullet Man essentially re like opened the world's eyes back up to the Japanese film industry. So, yeah. And just so you guys know, for the next couple episodes, as long as we're still covering Tsukamoto, we will not be doing any more movie reviews. Yeah, they'll be wrapped into the... Yeah, they'll, they're going to be wrapped into the actual episodes. We're going to watch some of his films prior. We felt that this one would be a little bit better to not watch one of his movies because we didn't cover any of his movies and we'd prefer them to be more fresh in our minds as sure. we're going to talk about them. In great detail. Yeah, and not to get into too much personal stuff, but uh, for those who can, send positive energy and well wishes to Ben the Beardo here because my co-host will be uh, under going under the knife. Getting the big stab. Yeah, in about a month, and then he'll be recovering for about a month. So we don't know if that is going to affect the schedule of recording, which it probably will put it off by a week, maybe two. But we, with any luck, we'll be back with minimal interruption, and we'll we'll keep social media updated about that. So. Yeah, and let us know if you want to see any cool pictures of all my gore. Yeah, I will be trying to get as many pics as I can. Yeah, it's so. gonna be fucking nasty. He's gonna be he's gonna be Ben the Flesh Man. 
Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm going to have titanium clamps inside of me, so... Ooh, clamp it, baby. I kind of will be an Iron Man, but a titanium man. Yeah, that's kind of sick. So, anyways, thank you guys for listening. We appreciate it oh so much. Feel free to send us a message on Instagram, an email on the email, a message on Facebook, or post on our whatever. Uh, rate and review on iTunes, uh, subscribe, etc., etc. Thank you, thank you. Be cool, we cool, you cool. It's all cool, bro. All right, Dick Fetty's rambling. Later, nerds. Later.